welcome to Never Lick the Spoon, the podcast from the Institute for Molecular Science and Engineering at Imperial College London. I'm Isabella von Holstein, and in this series, I'm going to continue to bring you stories from the teeny tiny world of molecules and how they're being used to solve some of the big challenges facing our planet. I'm also going to highlight some of the amazing people involved in science and technology across Imperial and further afield. In this episode, I'm exploring 3D printing again, specifically about printing materials that can support the growth of living organisms. I first spoke to Connor Mayant, who works at the Dyson School of Design Engineering at Imperial, who told me about the history of 3D printing. How did the field get started in the first place, and what made it grow? 3D printing has actually been around a lot longer than we were aware of. I think the phrase was really first coined back in the early uh, 1980s. And uh, Chuck Hall, the inventor of uh, a process called stereolithography, or SLA as most people know it, uh, you use a laser to selectively cure a photopolymer. And he invented that back in, back in the early 1980s. But for whatever reason, yeah, 3D printing really didn't explode until probably around about, I think it was 2012, for two reasons. One, patent expiring. That led to an explosion in the number of startup companies and the explosion of like an at-home hobbyist 3D printers. And to me, it's really been the hobbyist movement that's driven a lot of the technical innovations product innovations in the last 10 years and the media interest in it. The other reason is called RepRap. Somewhere 2005 or later, something like this, they started up a funded research project to, to look at this concept of, can you create a machine that can recreate itself? And it was all open source. That was a catalyst for a lot of these spin-outs. It was just a fantastic kind of movement to create manufacturing potential at your own home out of anything that's available to you. Connor works with a 3D printing process called VAT polymerization. He describes how this works. So we have a VAT of resin, photoactive resin. We shine light into it and that's what cures the resin, that's what um, polymerizes it, turns it into a solid. The equipment you need is a lot cheaper than say if you're working with metals, um, so that's always handy. We don't just kind of do your traditional hard plastics, we look at um, some other cool material stuff like uh, hydrogels, and it is an amazing material, you know, at the end of the day this is um, a plastic where you can have 99% of your object is actually water. So what could we use these hydrogels for? Could we grow food in them? You have probably already eaten food grown using hydroponics, where plant roots don't grow in soil at all, but instead in a nutrient solution. What if they grew in a hydrogel instead? We spoke to a colleague of Connor's at Imperial, who is looking into what this hydrogel would need to be able to do to mimic or improve on what soil does. I'm Giovanni Sena, and I'm a senior lecturer in the Department of Life Sciences at Imperial College London. My background is in physics, but my 
interest uh, is uh, currently is in uh, plant biology, in uh, developmental biology. And more specifically in my group right now we are studying uh, plant roots and uh, the sort of the biology and the biophysics of uh, interaction between roots and their environment and soil. Plants are funny because they happen to have uh, half of their body in soil and the other half of the body in the atmosphere and uh, it presents challenges because of course the two environments are very different. So we know the atmosphere, the atmosphere is much simpler and soil is much more complex. So if you really, when you want to study the environment where plant lives, you should spend most of your time thinking about soil. So what sorts of things do you have to think about if you want to make an artificial soil? If you ask anybody, how can, you know, how would you make artificial soil? Most of the students uh, would come up with stuff like uh, you put a lot of different stones together, maybe stones of different sizes, maybe they are not stones, they are particles, maybe they are little spheres. Why different sizes? Maybe so that you can mimic uh, different kind of uh, permeability, different kind of porosity, different mechanical structure, mechanical property of, of this uh, object maybe to create pockets of air, pockets of water. The advantage of this approach, I would say, is uh, very simple, probably relatively cheap, but the, 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 the negative bit of it is that you don't control it very, very well. So every time you follow the recipe and you make a new batch of your artificial soil, on average they share same property, but not exactly, not in, not in a deterministic way. You cannot say, every time I make it this way, I will have uh, 42 pockets of air that are 10.5 uh, micron cube volume. You, don't, you cannot do that. You cannot control it. Why is having a more controlled way of building soil useful? So there is this aspect of fundamental research, fundamental plant science or root biology where you can really test uh, carefully questions about interactions between uh, soil and, uh, and roots. Mechanical properties of this interaction are quite, uh, quite interesting. On top of all this, in, in my lab recently we have been studying uh, interaction between uh, roots and electric fields. I mean, most of the living stuff is not uh, electrically neutral, right? It has some kind of charge, starting from membranes of bacteria and so on. But also just pockets of ions, which for the roots is, uh, are nutrients. They also are, they are charged, so they, they can create some very weak uh, uh, electrical charges. There is also quite stronger uh, difference in uh, electrical charges between soil and the atmosphere as well. Thunderstorms are part of this story. Roots seems to have evolved a way to detect this uh, electric field and so building artificial soil might also offer you the possibility to control very well electrical properties and so on, electrostatics and so on. This is only chapter one because I'm still thinking of mimicking natural soil. Now the next next step uh, is to go beyond 
natural soil and design a novel synthetic structure inspired by natural soil but that goes beyond and maybe enhances the property of natural soil like a super soil right and that might be designed to serve specific needs of plants or if you're not into plants of other soil organisms and then the applications are you know this can go from uh, soilless uh, agriculture and vertical farming you know vertical uh, gardens or in architecture applications farming uh, in uh, microgravity conditions so either in uh, on a space station in orbit uh, or in a condition of reduced gravity or, or very very alien environments uh, like on other planets right or, or on, on the moon um, what would be the advantage of using an artificial soil as opposed to just taking a chunk of earth soil and making and trying that on a space station let's say because the real soil is heavy and it costs a lot of money to bring it up there so if you at some point you decide to build a, a space farm in orbit uh, you wouldn't think of bringing natural soil there but if you could 3d print uh, a light and a very efficient uh, artificial structure that does the same job that is more attractive. Are there many groups working on this at the moment? Is it something that is of wide interest? Well, the artificial soil, uh, yes. Uh, the soilless growth, you know, the soilless cultivation is a big uh, topic. Most of the people uh, tend to solve it with hydroponics, which has been around for a long time. So this idea that you don't really need all this mumbo-jumbo of the soil, just put it in a vase of water and they're going to be fine. But the truth is that, you know, it depends what you're looking for, right? Which plants that you want to grow. You know, some strawberries and lettuce, hydroponics is very good. It's enough. But if you want to go to some more complex root architecture, more complex crop plants and so on, and get an optimal yield, it's untested really whether whether hydroponic is, is good enough. So there is definitely an interest from a yield perspective to look for alternatives. There is also the whole uh, movement or idea of uh, sustainable uh, agriculture, both in terms of uh, optimal use of uh, water and nutrients and resources, but also in terms of uh, use of land. That's another starting point for many people. Do we really need in the 21st century to use uh, actual land and actual soil to grow our plants? How would you scale this up? How much hydrogel would you need to grow enough food, for example, for London? 9.5 million people. Well, the the first thing to understand is how many do you actually need? Because uh, the food is the output. So how many plants do you need to grow to feed this population is one question, which is also not easy because, of course, it depends on which plant you're talking about. What do you eat of the plant? The fruit, the leaves, everything, the roots? 
So that's one question, right? How nutrients they are, how much of these plants a person have to eat in order to satisfy its dietary necessary? It depends on requirements, it depends on the on what plant you're talking about. So that's one issue. Then you ask uh, how much artificial soil would you need to grow one of these plants? And that also depends on the plant you're talking about, right? How, how much, how many roots do they need, and how complex is the root system, and so on. And then you need to ask uh, what is turnaround, you know, how does this uh, artificial soil, uh, can it be used for more than one generation of the plants? How long does it, does it exist? In other words, does it deteriorate, does it degrade? So that you have to reprint it every year, or can you once it's printed, can you use it for many years, many seasons? I'm also thinking, can you recycle it when you really can't use it again? Maybe you know, can be used to feed other microorganisms or, or animals. Oh, I see. Plants. So once you've grown a really complex plant in it, you could then grow algae in it, for example. Yeah, or yeah. just or just toss it somewhere where you have some uh, microorganisms that feed on it so that it disappears and then re-enter the cycle. I can feel the, the, how exciting it is as a field just when you're listing the number of different skills and professional backgrounds that are needed to put it all together. You're going to need nutritionists, plant specialists and farmers and then chemists and life scientists and, and the engineers and people who do recycling. And yeah, exactly. I'm quite interested also in the in the human uh, effort of doing things, or in the human organization. And you just listed you know, the ideal research team. I don't think it exists anywhere. Either because of you know money and funding, but also for uh, maybe cultural and uh, organizational barriers where if you are in a life science department at the university, you tend to hire life science uh, researchers. And maybe if you're thinking a little bit wider, you can collaborate with a couple of engineers. Most of the time that's it. Or maybe a mathematician to help you with some modeling and then design or a physicist. But I don't know anybody who in their team... Uh, also collaborate with a nutritionist or a or a professional farmer or somebody or some or even a professional agritech expert. It just costs too much. Thank you to Conor Mayant and Giovanni Sena for talking to me about their research. You've had a glimpse of the past, present and future of 3D printing. It's been around for about 40 years now. In some industries, like aerospace, it's already widely used, but it's only just getting going in agriculture. It's actually typical that a new industrial invention takes about 30 years to go from concept to development and finally onto the market. It can be as little as five years, like for LCD TVs, which were invented in 1988, or as much as nearly 40 years for solar panels, which were invented in 1954. And this doesn't count the time for these inventions to become widely used. 
Does this long timeline surprise you? What do you think about eating plants which are grown in a hydrogel? When do you think you'll be doing that? Share your thoughts with us on Twitter at imperial underscore imsy or email us at imsy at imperial.ac.uk. Until next time, take care. And remember, never lick the spoon.